three, two, one, go. Talking now, go. Welcome back to the Film Hole Podcast. I'm Trevor. And I'm Raul. I'm a filmmaker. And I am a film watcher, part-time scientist. I am an amateur scientist as well. You didn't know that about me, did you, Raul? I didn't know that. We're rubbing off on each other. Every week we watch a movie. And then we get together, drink some beers, and talk about it. Today I'm drinking whiskey, so it's a little different. Ooh. This week we watched... Rushmore. Directed by Wes Anderson. Who can only be described as... Wes Anderson. Wes Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite joke from that uh, Screen Junkies video. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the pre-show that we had and all of that? So so like usual, we got together and we watched the movie. We put together a little compilation of Wes Anderson related like little clips. Mm -hmm. I was in charge of that this week. So I decided to put a lot of Wes Anderson's commercial work, like, Mm -hmm. like literal commercial work in there um some of the short films i really enjoyed that i loved i mean it makes sense that he's directed commercials and i even said that i'd seen one of them before which now makes perfect sense that he directed that but i don't know when we're initially thinking about ideas to of things to put in the pre-show i never think like oh directors have directed other things than like films before is it normal for directors to do commercials i think so i mean everybody's path is a little different but i mean Yeah, I mean, directing is directing. And so, like, I imagine especially successful, long career directors have, like, both narrative and commercial work on their reel. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of music videos. Like, if you uh, Wikipedia any given director, there's a good chance, like, you'll see a good discography of music video work that they've done. Yeah. So what were some of the things that you pulled other than commercials or including commercials? Uh, I mean, so I included like I most of the short films that Wes Anderson has done, including I, I, don't, I can't think of the names off the top of my head, but the one with Jason Schwartzman being like a race car driver in the 50s in Italy. Yeah. Well, that was like a short film. Uh-huh. But for, like the commercials, commercials. Uh, I mean, what were they? They were the MasterCard or American Express. Yeah, one of those two. Great. I mean, we should know because that's the whole point of the commercial. <laughs> yeah. As like an Arby's commercial or something with Wes Anderson in it. And that one I've seen before, actually. That one's like one of my favorites. Arby's? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> like, I can't even so, tell yeah. you what, what the topic of the commercial was. There was one that was like H&M, like the clothing store. That was like the last one on the queue. That's the most recent one he made. It came out just a few years ago. I honestly couldn't tell you anything about it. I just remember being like shocked that it was like an H&M, H&M ad at the end. Uh-huh. Like it could have been about anything. It was a pretty touching, like, little short film. It was like this train conductor played by Adrian Brody, and they had some weather delays. And so, yeah, okay. So that's it, what that was. They were all on their way for some. Yeah. In my mind, that was just another short film, like the whole Adrian Bo- Brody on a train ad, which I guess is the H&M ad. Like the whole, like, seeing that sequence of stories was like a film. And then I just saw the H&M logo at the end. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, that was an ad. <laughs> Would you consider that an ad or a short film? I think it kind of straddles the two. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'm not really sure like what the distribution on something like that looks like. Because that was my first thought. I'm like, this thing's very long and like highly produced. Uh-huh. So it's not like it would appear like on like broadcast television or even like, you know, at the front end of, you know, when you get like YouTube ads, like it's too long seemingly for that. So I'm not really sure like the context in which you would see something like that. 
Yeah, definitely not like in a commercial spot, like a typical one. Yeah. It's the same thing as that the race car short film, because that is also like a Prada thing. Oh, okay. If you remember. See, I didn't even pick up on that. Like, I just thought it was like a short film. If like the beginning of it, like does it starts with like a shot of Prada, like the word. Okay. And then he's like wearing like Prada on his racing suit that he has, like that leather one. Uh huh. And so, yeah, just another example of like a weird half commercial half film. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like it seems to me that you when you are an agency hiring Wes Anderson to direct your commercial, you're basically just getting a short film with your logo at the beginning or the end. And that's it. I mean, that's what that's what you want. Yeah, I think that's worth the money. Yeah, but it's it's funny that like what uh, what other directors get to do stuff like that. It's just like, I'm just going to make a little movie for myself. And we'll just like put we'll put your logo in it. <laughs> I can't think of any. I've always like had this question about product placement kind of on similar lines. This is a real tangent. And we'll get back on track after this. But the idea of product placement, I've always been a little confused as to like who is paying who for that. Uh huh. So is like, let's say Pepsi in like Wayne's world. That's an easy one, right? Because it's they make fun of it. But it's like, is Pepsi paying the director to feature their product in the movie? Or is the director like having to pay Pepsi because they're showing their IP in the movie? That's a good question. Does it just like come down to like who has more notoriety between the two? Like who would get more financial gain? I think so. It maybe also depends like who approached who first. Uh If Wayne's World had the idea of this like cool bit with that featured Pepsi and it was supposed to be like a self-referential kind of like third wall breaking thing. Uh Uh-huh. If they are dead set on doing that, they have to approach Pepsi at some point and be like, we want to do this. Yeah. And then it feels like the money would go towards Pepsi. Position of power, right? Right, right. Hmm. A good counterexample is, have you ever noticed like in, in a lot of TVs, TV shows, if you ever see a computer, the logo is like taped up? Yeah, I noticed that a lot. It, it feels like in those cases, you should just be able to ask the company for that, like made the computer and just ask them like, is it cool if I flash your logo? I feel like they would say yes, but. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example because it's like if they're covering it up, likely it means that they would have to pay that company money to feature it and Uh not the other way around. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just it's perplexing. Like, I'm not familiar enough with that process to say one way or the other, like how it works all the time. Yeah. My best guess is that it's just like a notoriety thing. Okay, back to the movie. (laughs) That's all to say that, you know, I'm really enjoying this. Lagunitas IPA, the refreshing taste of Southern California. They put the pub in public radio. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know that like word for word. The show is brought to you today by Lagunitas Brewing Company, putting the pub in public radio. We'd also like to thank our uh, show's founder, Tori Malatino, who came, walked me up on the street the other day and just uh, was telling me about how he hates the new coffee at Starbucks. Oh, this coffee's fucking bullshit. <laughs> like out of context, context clip. Out of context clip. They've stopped saying that. <laughs> that bit about Tori Maltia. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. At the beginning, he says like something similar where he's like, this is Iroglass. Stay with us. Stay with us. Um, I would just like to say Margaret is not supposed to get with a guy in the end because he was mean to her the whole entire movie. And she's supposed to give him the finger and walk away, but she didn't. And I'm mad. <laughs> I'm, I like want to just go on a streak of watching Wes Anderson movies now. It was hilarious. 
Anna and I always have like a hard time sitting through an entire movie. I think it's like one of us has to get up and do something <laughs> at some point. But this yeah. time, nothing. I was I was hungry. And I I was like, oh, I don't want to go to the kitchen and miss anything. <laughs> I will say. I feel like having seen several of his other movies, while this one definitely has like a very Wes Anderson vibe, I think it is not quite as stylized as some of his others. I thought, okay, okay, so like I've only like watched one or two of his like later movies and like I now like have some understanding of like what the Wes Anderson style is. The genre. And I was like watching this movie like to its like full extent just today and I was thinking how like like how well made it is for to fit the Wes Anderson style as mm-hmm. opposed to I would have been like more for, forgiving if it was more I, I don't know like less so but you see now like all the symmetrical like artistic scenes all throughout. I thought it was still like very like Wes Anderson Anderson style for yeah earlier work and I was kind of like surprised. It's just a kind of comedy you don't see often and there weren't any of those like kind of like slapstick laughs. It was just like I was kind of giggling, not giggling, but yeah, chuckling that, the entire time. That's what I liked about it. <laughs> like I, I, I would just kind of, <laughs> as if I scrolled across a yeah. funny meme or something. So let's talk about the plot. Yeah, what's the movie about? It's about... What's the kid's name? Max Fisher. Max Fisher. See, this movie, I actually know the name of the characters. You actually know them? Yeah. Because I, I don't. Jason Schwartz- Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. And Bill Murray and uh, one of the Wilson brothers. Or actually, all of them? All Are of all them. Of them <laughs> yeah. yeah. I looked it up. There's only three of them. Okay. And they're all in this movie. Yeah. Okay. Which is something kind of interesting. I didn't realize this, but like the Wilson brothers like had... Owen Wilson had writing credits on this movie. Oh, okay. He wasn't in it, actually, so I mean, we might have misspoken, but... Okay, so he's part affiliated with this movie. Not definitely affiliated. His brother, Luke, and then the other guy are also in it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize this. Like, Owen Wilson actually, like, came from this movie scene of Wes Anderson of, like, Texas in the 90s. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, that was, like, the genesis of Owen Wilson. Yeah, yeah. That is, like, way cooler than what Owen Wilson's career became. <laughs> Definitely. Like, really, like, sold out, like, right after that. Like, what else was he in? Like, Wedding Crashers? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Zoolander? Zoolander's pretty good, but it's not, like, Wes Anderson movies. No, but his, like, career in the 2000s and on was this, like, very stereotypical sort of comedy leading man role. Yeah. Like, somewhat attractive to be a leading man, but also always plays funny. Yeah. It's because of the nose. Like, he was, like, leading man everywhere except the nose and like that's why it had to like kind of straddle that comedy oh wow <laughs> line. wow wow guys my nose is broken so okay. i gotta guess i guess i gotta do comedy guys <laughs> but this isn't a podcast about owen wilson although it could be no <laughs> we're we're here to talk about rushmore so let's do a brief plot synopsis so the movie is about a private school called rushmore so it's the titular title high school High school, middle school, and like, is it K through 12? Yeah, it might be. Yeah. And it's uh, attended by like the main character played by Justin Schwartzman, Max Fisher, who when we're introduced to him, appears to be like this very outgoing, outstanding student who's involved in a lot of like extracurricular activities. Mm-hmm. The movie like on the surface at the very beginning paints him as like that kind of a golden boy student. 
Yeah, golden boy student. Although they very quickly point out that he's like actually not very gifted academically. Yeah. So he doesn't at like, all doesn't do well at the grades, but he's still like really involved with the school. He obviously has great school spirit and a lot of drive and ambition. But then the movie proceeds. We're introduced to the character of the elementary school teacher played by why did I set myself up like that? I don't know. <laughs> But this elementary school teacher comes into the scene and then Max develops like an infatuation for her. Bill Murray comes into the mix at some point. He's like this captain of industry whose kids attend Rushmore. He himself is like a donor to Rushmore. And then what happens after that? I can't really think of much more plot points. Well, the movie kind of... I feel like the movie doesn't really get more complex than that in our screen junkies trailer which pokes fun at wes anderson movies it kind of pointed out the consistencies between the plots of all of his movies and they hit a lot of the same beats so he develops like a competitive uh relationship with bill murray who is this like factory president or owner or something a rich local business tycoon Mm-hmm. who's going through some problems in his marriage and he also becomes attracted to the elementary school teacher and we should say that like max's like motivations for being with the teacher are weird because he's a high school student and he doesn't quite get that she's not into that and simultaneously she's kind of falling for this businessman who is also married and like the trailer pointed out that like there's always some sort of like taboo like relationship thing going on in all of his movies and that is a double whammy because it's like Bill Murray is married and Jason Schwartzman is like a high school student. But the movie is like, when you say that, when you say that out loud, you're like, holy shit, like this movie sounds so like dark and like fucked up. But it's just like this cutesy little Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's only really one scene where like the weight of that dynamic between this older teacher and this very young student becomes apparent. Yeah, you're talking about, like, when they, like, confront each other in her classroom? Yes. Like, at the end? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But other than that, it plays off, like, it's a little cringy to look at, but, like, it's mostly harmless all the way through. Like, he's obviously just, like, a, a young man who's got, like, ideas that don't drive with reality, and she's trying her best to kind of, like, stay professional mm-hmm. and s- stay distant. Yeah. So, to s- I want to sum up the plot, if we need to, really quick, and then talk a little bit more about the whole like Wes Anderson style and how he's able to pull off like what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. like presenting kind of topics with a lot of gravitas and a very like kind of cutesy, very innocent style. Uh huh. Is there anything else that needs mentioning in the plot? Uh, I'm trying to remember what ultimately happens. Neither of the relationships between either, you know, Jason Schwartzman and the teacher or Bill Murray and the teacher work out at the end. Oh, they don't? No, I don't think so. I thought it was implied because when they sit, when Bill Murray and the teacher sit next to each other in the play, I thought that was like moving in the direction of like their relationship was going to Mm. work out. Okay. Yeah. You might be right about that. I don't know if there's any sort of like conclusive evidence of that. The last shot is Jason, Jason Schwartzman dancing with that teacher. Okay. Uh, To me, the real ending is that like Jason has basically gotten a new lease on life. It seems like he's over the teacher He's succeeded at this, like, new public school that he got. Mm -hmm. I mean, we missed this point. He got, like, kicked out of his private school. Yeah. He gets kicked out for academic misconduct. A.K.A. academic misconduct? Yeah. Just having bad grades. His grades are so bad, they were going to kick him out. Oh, you know what it was? It was because, like, it was, like, when he built that, like, baseball stadium. Oh, yeah. That's That's a scene that we should save. 
I like that one a lot. Okay. But yeah, just like ultimately like it's a happy ending for Max. He's at this new school. The, the movie ends with him performing this like really outlandish play that he yeah. set up and everybody's happy and he's got like a new relationship. We should say that the movie sort of establishes him as like some sort of like really great playwright. <laughs> like that was the reason that he got a scholarship to get into this private school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has something to do with like his origin and the movie reveals more about that as it goes on. But like one of the re- repetitive jokes in this movie is that he puts on these extremely like elaborate pop culture based plays that are just like unlike anything you would be used to seeing at like a high school, mm-hmm. like a high school play. And I think that's partially like the Wes Anderson flavor there. And I think it's also like just doing character work for that guy where it's like, look at how like dedicated he is to this like medium of entertainment. Right. Right. Okay. okay. So that's, that's the plot essentially. So maybe let's talk a little bit about like Wes Anderson, the guy and like what, maybe what the context around this movie is. So this is his second film. Uh huh. What was his first one? Bottle Rocket, which came out like a few years earlier than that. Okay. Do you know anything about like the genesis of like why this movie came to be? Oh, actually, no, not really. Okay. Doesn't really matter. I was just curious. But what we were talking about earlier, and I can't, this is where I want to get a little bit deeper. I want to try and like define or talk about like what is it about the Wes Anderson coat of paint on movies. Like, how would you define it? Like, what are the essential ingredients of making a Wes Anderson movie? And then after that, how is it that he's able to utilize that to talk about, like, really serious topics in sort of a lighthearted way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's a good topic of discussion. There's a lot of ways to go out about it. Let's start with essential ingredients. Visually, his movies are always really symmetrical. Mm-hmm. He makes use of a lot of like similar shots in his movies, like all laid out beautifully by that that uh, honest trailers video we saw beforehand. But he loves like overhead shots of writing and paper. He loves quick mm-hmm. pans. Yeah, it's almost like the screen junkies thing lays it out in a very like funny kind of non flattering way for Wes Anderson because it it seems like he's like a one trick pony according to that thing. Uh-huh. But I, I, I don't think that's doing him justice, really. I think that, um, yeah, some symmetry is like a big thing in all of his movies. And it's like a lot of wide angle lens lenses, a lot of like oneers. So the camera isn't moving a whole lot. Oftentimes, there are a lot of like walking shots where you're held on a character for like a, a really long period of time. He doesn't seem to really like cuts as much as he can avoid them. And I, I guess, like, anybody who's seen, like, Wes Anderson movies, like, just kind of gets it, just kind of knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. But it seems like a very, like, intentional, like, visual style that I don't really know if it, like, represents anything other than, like, that's just what, like, Wes Anderson likes. And it's really hard to describe other than that, just the very particular fascinations and aesthetics of one man. Yeah, I think that, like, it's grounded in a lot of, like, how old is Wes Anderson? Like, 40? Yeah. In his 40s? Let's see. He is 50. 51, actually. But I think he grew up in the 70s. Would that make sense? Mm-hmm. So he was born 1969. So, yeah, probably on the tail end of the 70s, early 80s. And I think that, like, a lot of 
the motifs in his movies reflect that. I think that he's a real fan of like technology and style from the 70s. Whenever you see him, he kind of looks like he kind of came out of the 70s. Mm-hmm. Like he wears clothes or like suits that make me feel like <laughs> he's like from that era. A lot of the technology used, I think, uh, in the in his movies, very artfully done, like does represent that time period specifically. Yeah, I think nostalgic is a word that's thrown around a lot for him. Yeah. Even like his hair, like he just kind of like looks like a figure out of the coolest, most childlike things about the 70s. I, maybe like the best way to sum this up is it's like if you grew up in like the late 70s, early 80s, some this is someone who's uh, speaking as a person who did not grow up in, in that time period. So I'm not the authority on this, but it feels like he is very nostalgic for that time period and... I don't know really what I'm saying anymore. I've kind of like lost, lost track. Yeah, I'm having a hard time capturing the essence of his films, but the fact that this movie is about like an elitist prep school in like the American Northeast. I don't even know if that last part is true, but it just seems to make (laughs) sense. Yeah. What his movies are about. Yeah. There's probably like a more finer point way to describe all of this, but we're just not doing it justice. No, we're not. If I could sum it up, it would just be like, if you were a child, like in the 70s, all of the things that you uh, reminisce about are like how the visual story of Wes Anderson movies are told. Mm -hmm. I think that his movies are like what, like what a child's perspective of like the 70s was like. I think in one of the interviews that I watched leading up to this movie that someone described Wes Anderson as like someone who's been able to maintain a real childlike perspective on the world. So maybe that's sort of it. It's like, it's serious topics, like serious things that are that are talked about in his movies, very artful displays of characters and sets and environments, but like done so in sort of a childlike manner, like if, if a child told the story. And it, it's hard to describe because if you look at his entire catalog, all the movies like on paper seem so different than one another mm-hmm. like this movie and then jump to like the darjeeling limited it's a movie about like people in india go to grand Budapest, and, and now you're in hungary i mean so the settings and the people it changed so much across his different movies but there's still some core there mm-hmm. that is perceptibly his i'm gonna i'm gonna like attempt to put another another point of definition on what we're trying to describe i think that like this movie does i think it's a good setup for the rest of wes anderson because a a big motif in this movie is plays and like the aesthetic of like on stage performance Mm -hmm. and we talked about this in another episode where you know like theater is sort of this it's not like what we think of when we're talking about movies where things are much more subtle and supposed to be more representative of real life whereas theater or like plays tend to be more caricatures of real life because they need to project to an audience. Uh-huh. Certain certain types of plays are a little bit more like cartoon-like in their portrayal of reality, you know? And uh-huh. there's, there is something about like everything that you're looking at is confined to this like stage that you're looking at, right? Like you can very easily tell that this is a stage and that those are props. And so it's sort of acknowledging that it's a performance just visually like play, plays are, I think inherently breaking the fourth wall visually just because it's 
a play and you're watching it in that way. And I think that his movies sort of mirror a similar quality where they are like aware that they are a performance and they feel very much like sort of acted plays. Yeah. Like everybody is sort of overacting and not in, not in a, a negative way, but like everything is, I don't know, like ultra scripted. Uh, it doesn't really feel like real life. It, it feels like hyper coordinated maybe is a way of putting it. But I think that this movie does a good job of like using the whole play thing because uh, Max Fisher is a playwright in this movie and he's actually doing plays about pop culture and like regular traditional movies. But like Wes Anderson movies is sort of like the inverse of that where it's like his movies are about or, or they're sort of told in this sort of play like style. Yeah, yeah. I like all of that. That's a really nice like way to touch together the plays in the movie with how they kind of like come off as these perform pieces. Because you're right, like this is definitely a movie world that you're looking at. Yeah. Right? There, mm-hmm. There's no... I, I go off a lot about like realism in movies and how that's something that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. But that's definitely something you need to check out the door when you're watching one of Wes Anderson's films. Yeah. Because if you take it too seriously, you're like oh man, like this 15-year-old kid is trying to have a sexual relation with this teacher. Yeah. I feel sad now. But I mean, like if you were to tell that through like kind of the normal Hollywood style, this would be like a very like taboo story of intrigue and it gets really serious really fast and that doesn't happen in this movie. It's more of like, how ridiculous is that? Like that seems to be the movie's stance on this. Mm -hmm. And like you sort of suspend your concern with that whole dynamic because I think the movie is very transparent about it being fantasy. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. You suspend your concern. Like something that Grace pointed out about the love interest between him and the public high school girl, Margaret Chang, Mm -hmm. and how like that was a completely like undeserved relationship. Like by all accounts, Max Fisher has few redeeming qualities as far as a a partner, Mm -hmm. a potential partner is concerned. You know, so, like, in no rightful terms should he have, like, gotten the girl at the end because he hadn't done anything to deserve that. Mm-hmm. But you just accept it because you're like, this movie needs a happy ending. It needs to be wrapped up with a nice bow. And this is one of the elements that we're going to introduce. And you're just like, sure. Yeah, exactly. You accept it. Which it makes sense, too, that, like, the movie, I think, uses sort of a very literal device to explain the whole Wes Anderson style with this character being very invested in plays. Because this is like an early movie, mm-hmm. whereas like you can you can sort of see, I guess, in this movie, this is like pretty meta or abstract, I guess. But I guess like in this movie, the plays that we see in this movie are ridiculous, right? The plays that we see Max Fisher come up with and are presented to us like several times throughout the movie are like ludicrous, like overacted, like very dramatic set pieces. Mm-hmm. Just caricatures of themselves, I think is like a word that I used earlier. But I think that those are representative of like what all later Wes Anderson movies would become. So you sort of see this transition from like normal early Wes Anderson where there's like a little bit of like kind of traditional filmmaking in there and there's a little bit of like the theatrical Wes Anderson style both in this movie. And so it it serves as a nice like transitional piece to like the rest of like what his career would be. Mm -hmm. Have you seen Bottle Rocket, his first film? I have not. You should watch it. Just just like, I think you'll be really interested in like how... Does it feel like the rest of his movies? Nope. 
does it like feel like just a normal movie yeah in a lot of ways for a large part but after watching it and like realizing that it's wes anderson on repeat viewings you're kind of like oh okay i can see like where that would become some of his signature styles yeah it's already there he has like within probably better than most directors like a very clear route of maturity as a director Uh like you can trace it like from film to film like exactly like where he was and like developing his style Mm -hmm. and in general like the fact that he has such a tight style that's easily recognizable that that's something that he's committed to for his entire career is something that i really admire Mm -hmm. like he's just made a voice for himself that's so unique but then he still tries to kind of like push the boundaries of that within that Mm -hmm. we spoke a little bit about like the calling wes anderson's style like a genre in itself Mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of fitting because you can really tell that what he does is like his own thing and he's made he's created the rules for his movies himself yeah and he stays there it's weird because it's like you see a wes anderson movie and i think at least this is how i see it i'm like oh this feels like a certain type of movie Like, you watch Wes Anderson movies, and you see the performances, and the camera angles, and, like, the color palettes, and you're like, oh, this is, like, that type of movie. But what you're really saying is, like, oh, this is a Wes Anderson movie. Because really, like, no one else does it like that. No. But somehow, like, the style itself, like, transcends the guy. Whereas, like, we've talked about, you know, other directors where, like, they have a style, right? You can be like, oh, this is... This feels a lot like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. This feels a lot like a Quentin Tarantino movie. This feels a lot like, you know, X. But this, like, Wes Anderson movies feel like something else. They feel like they are, like, they are a genre that, like, transcends him. But, like, in reality, like, he's the only one who does that. He invented that. Let's try putting it this way. Like, let's take Quentin Tarantino as an example. Like, Quentin Tarantino's movies are him trying to make, like, the action shooter movies you know that he grew up with and the genre that he loves trying to make his version of that Mm -hmm. but we're it's it's very clear that we're still like within that genre and we know the pool of influences that he draws from Mm -hmm. to make all his movies so like quentin tarantino makes a western and you get django and you get the hateful eight Mm -hmm. quentin tarantino does like a heist movie you get reservoir dogs oh okay yeah that's like a diamond heist movie Mm -hmm. all of those sort of types of movies have slots within our popular culture within like the holodeck of movies that you can make mm-hmm. he's pulling cards out and then making his versions of those or yeah. mixing one or two of them wes anderson is just like not pulling from any template mm-hmm. they're so unique that you can't point to a single genre like i can try to kind of think of what genres his movies are but they usually i usually fail or I'm kind of like stretching. Yeah. I mean, if I had to call it a genre, it would be like indie romantic comedy, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty good. But he, I don't know. Even that doesn't like encapsulate everything that makes up his, his movies because they're so specific. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's talk a little bit more about Rushmore than Wes Anderson. We've been spending a lot of time on Wes Anderson. Well, I really want to talk about Wes Anderson's parents and, and kind of go in that direction <laughs> as far as away from this movie as I can. The year is 1969. Wes Anderson <laughs> is born. So I just want to give like a, a few more parting thoughts on like the phenomenon of Wes Anderson. Okay. Which is just to say that like I love him. He's like one of my favorite directors. 
I've seen all their all his movies, and each one of them is like a classic and infinitely rewatchable. Yeah. And I will do that every once in a while, and I'm just a big fan. What do you think makes his movies like infinitely rewatchable? How good they are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How many of his movies have you seen? Uh, not many compared to other people we've talked about on this podcast. Let's see. I've seen Grand Budapest. I've seen Royal Tenenbaums. I've seen Life Aquatic. I've seen... So that's three. I've seen Rushmore, and that might be it. Okay. No Moonrise Kingdom or Isle of Dogs, the most recent ones? Nope. Neither on those. Okay. Fantastic Mr. Fox like came out when I was like in high school and working at the movie theater. And I remember it actually coming through the movie theater. Oh, really? But like that was like way before I was like into indie types of films and definitely way before Wes Anderson was on my radar at all. So like when a stop motion like Fox movie showed up, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, I'm not interested at all. That almost seems like something that would have more wide appeal than anything. Because you can see like a complete, like a regular family just being like, oh, this movie's presumably PG or PG-13 and it looks fun. Maybe that was my impression. I felt like maybe it was like a kid's movie that like, because you see like smaller stop motion films come through a lot. Like there's plenty of like stop motion animation stuff that flies completely under the radar year to year. And I think that I just assumed that that was one of those. It's so interesting that he came back and did a second stop motion animation film. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, the first time it makes complete sense. You're like, yeah, he's, like, an amazing director, and he uh, loves to broaden his horizons and try new things. But then he comes back for a second, Mm -hmm. a third, a fourth, a fifth, and then he's just a completely animation director. Yeah. That's the fear. Hope that doesn't happen. I really enjoy his movies with real people. With real people. Honestly, like, I've never seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, so I'm way out of my league here, but... I feel like his the two movies that he've done he's done that are fully stop motion I'm less attracted to to go watch. Isle of Dogs is really good. I'm sure it is. I just think that like stop motion like fits with Wes Anderson's style. Like it's definitely like a reflection of everything that I associate with him, but like only in like dosages among like real film. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. Whereas like incorporating like stop motion with like real people is like a much more like is a much older filmmaking technique and a lot of his like techniques i think intentionally try to mirror older stuff like that but like when it's a fully stop motion movie it doesn't feel as distinguishable from like any other stop motion thing Mm -hmm. right i think it's specifically the combination of like stop motion and real people that makes it very wes anderson-y and when it's just a fully stop motion thing it's like whatever yeah, do me a favor. Go watch Isle of Dogs. Have you seen Fantastic Mr. Fox also? Uh-huh. Which one do you like better out of those two? Definitely Isle of Dogs. Okay. And maybe it's because the Fox movie was not, like, crazy watchable or good. Okay. Maybe if I was ranking, that might not get super high on my list. Okay. Good to know. You got some scenes flagged that you want to talk about? Any in mind? Like, obviously, the easy one is the the finale vietnam play which is so freaking funny yeah the vietnam scene i actually remember i think probably you watching this movie like when we lived together yeah and i remember just walking in like during the the finale like vietnam scene and this for our listeners who haven't seen this movie this is like the climax where it's uh max fisher's like the greatest play that he's ever written with the largest budget <laughs> 
and it's like a full-on like Vietnam scene that you would see out of like a war movie from around that time. I think like 1980s Vietnam movie. Yeah. Like Platoon or something like that. Yeah. Like so over the top. Uses real dynamite, like crazy, like foliage props, planes and helicopters, great like sound design. Just like the craziest onstage like portrayal of Vietnam that you've ever seen. And that's what like makes it so funny. And so when I came in, when you and a friend of ours were watching this, like when I saw this like a number of years ago, like you guys were just laughing your asses off at this scene. And it's mm. surprising that I never like tried to watch it after that because I loved watching that sequence because I saw it like in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> you just <laughs> I just like stuck around for that whole part because it was so enticing. Uh-huh. It's such a great scene. Yeah. It's just a good scene. I love the tidbit like they handed out safety glasses to the entire audience. <laughs> of the play mm-hmm. because they're like live explosions and like fire happening yeah which i think is like so badass yeah i love the whole way that he acquires dynamite he just like goes somewhere and he's like he basically like illegally acquires like a box of dynamite and uses that for the play i don't remember that scene yeah he's like he's talking to someone like in a warehouse and he's like 10 sticks please and he's like make the make the charge out to this company and i don't remember what he said but i think it's like an important plot point but then he takes that crate of dynamite and you see him like walking down the street and then he ultimately gives it to his little buddy like the blonde kid i'm watching that right now he just has like a a a wooden box with dynamite pasted on it right (laughs) i actually love the way that box looks yeah i've got this weird thing with like boxes like i just love like well-constructed like crates and the way that they look and that that one is no exception. Definitely. Remember how we were talking about in the last episode how like different directors have like different weird like visual infatuations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were talking about how like David Lynch likes curtains. Yeah. Like later on, if I'm a successful director, people are like, yeah, he's got this thing about like crates. Like he's crates, really crates, pallets. He's really into crates. Anything <laughs> like that. Yeah. Or like uh, like Francis Ford Coppola and the Godfather movies and and oranges. Mm. Are you aware of that? No that motif. Mm-mm. I think it happened by accident, but like oranges appear in like almost all the scenes where somebody dies in The Godfather. Really? And so like people picked up on it. It happened by accident, though. I think so. Yeah, that's what I heard. I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt it. Have you seen them? Have I seen The Godfather? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. Yeah. So like when the when The Godfather gets killed, like on the street, he was like grocery shopping, and so his bag of groceries falls and the oranges roll. When the main guy Al Pacino dies in the third movie, he was he's like in a chair eating an orange, and then he dies, and the orange falls out. I see. Yeah, so that was a thing. So, what other uh, scenes did you like? <laughs> okay, so the so we just talked about the closing scene. the mm-hmm. The opening scene is pretty funny too. Which is what? The daydream of him like solving the hardest geometry problem in the world. Is it geometry? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It, it's it's set up with this teacher it's kind of a ridiculous setup like in addition to what follows but he's like this is like the hardest math problem ever solved he has it like on the board he's like that's just there as a joke it's like it's the hardest math problem in the world <laughs> and he's like yeah but like how much extra credit is it worth and he's like well i guess if anyone solved it i would see to it that you would never have to open a math book again or something also what does that mean who would he see to that for <laughs> i don't know the principal I don't know. Well, he even said, like, in the rest of your life, 
he said like through the rest of your career like as what as whatever like you would never and, have and i believe it was everybody in the class or was it just him what that what he would you... excuse everybody in the class from ever having to like do math again oh i don't know or we should be clear first... we're describing a dream that the character has that <laughs> none of this is reality it's definitely one of these like like high school fantasies of like being super impressive in front of your peers yeah because in this dream max fisher like it wasn't even like paying attention he was like reading a newspaper uh-huh. in class and then they're like oh max like you can do this problem and he gets up there and just i want to say something about this that i think you'll appreciate a lot as a, as a scientist i thought it was so funny that the setup was where like if you could solve like this like this incredibly difficult math equation, which is like kind of like the whole goodwill hunting thing. It's yeah, like there's yeah. this impossible problem on the board and like how the dream is that like if you solve that, it will lead you to a life without math. But in the real world, it's like if you solve that, like that means you are a lifelong mathematician and that is that should be your goal. <laughs> that's what I, I wanted to say that. Like yeah. that's, if, if you have somebody that's so brilliant that they could solve this, world challenging math problem in class you uh-huh. should be throwing every math book you have at them <laughs> yeah. that's what's so funny about it yeah it's like a direct i don't know inverse of like what the true scientific expectation should be there yeah but that seems hilarious and it just goes to show like max is somebody that i think definitely wants to be impressive to people mm-hmm. i think a lot of the stuff he does is kind of motivated by that let's talk more about that character because I think the character is really interesting for that reason. And it kind of ties into our Juno episode a little bit where we talked about this false sense of high school confidence, but in a mm-hmm. more, like, I don't know, stylized, hyper-real way. Like a false sense of maturity or something like that. Yeah. Whereas, like, Max, like, has what I feel like in the beginning of the movie, this kind of atypical, we talked about it earlier, like, golden boy montage where he's doing, like, all these extracurricular activities. He seems like this overachiever. I think someone in our chat said, like, underachieving go-getter is, like, the way to describe his character, which I don't think you see a lot in movies where he's, he's almost like a con man, like, is how I would describe his demeanor. Like, he has, like, a very entrepreneurial uh, go-getter attitude about a lot of the things that he's doing but he fucking sucks at school and he's kind of like a dumbass in a lot of ways yeah but like the movie doesn't use that against him like he's still like this very confident character like throughout this cool confident character and and they give him the play thing like if all the other stuff you can call into question like how good he is he still has the playwriting thing like he does seem to be a very well-regarded playwright and it seems to be generally, like, everybody agrees on that. So it's weird. Like, they're simultaneously giving all these points of, of like, a real skill, but then also make pains to highlight also how he's just, like, punching above his, his uh, weight class a little bit. Yeah. Why do they do that? I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like sort of a funny way of describing, like, the imperfection of, like, everyone, where there's, like, no such thing as, like, a golden boy, really. And so, like, even someone who appears to be, like, having it all together, obviously, like, they don't. And it's very obvious in a lot of ways. So much so that this guy's about to get kicked out of school. But it does it in, like, a very Wes Anderson kind of extreme way where he's, Mm -hmm. like, fucking flying planes but is, like, failing his math test. Yeah. It it must have something to do with, like, his background, like, his socioeconomic background. Max Fisher or Wes Anderson? 
Max Fisher. Okay. And I, I'm not really going anywhere with this. Maybe you can pick up on something. But the fact that he is not, he's in this like really rich prep school. All of his co-worker um, peers come from rich families. Presumably it's very expensive to go here. Yeah. I don't know how private school works. Yeah, that's a good point because it the movie does make it very clear that he's kind of from like the working class because his father is a barber. He doesn't come from money like a lot of his peers seem to. Mm-hmm. So I think that like it's sort of trying to paint this picture of he is in this school for good reasons, but he's also kind of out of his out of his depth in some ways and is right. maybe overcompensating for that. It, it almost seems like he's trying to go through the motions of being like a really outstanding model student, mm-hmm. but then is missing. Like, I don't know how long he's been going to Rushmore, but he just seems to be lacking like some pretty basic academic essentials. Mm hmm like on his math and like he can't do well on any of the classes but all those extra extracurriculars he does is like exactly the kind of thing you would want to do if you're a high achieving high school student and want to be on the track of like going into the ivy leagues and you mm-hmm. know reaching for the stars in that way mm-hmm. it's gonna be touched on this actually because this is a pretty important theme in the movie and in particular bill murray's character kind of has the same thing going on where you gather that he also did not come from money, right? Self-made man. It looks like he's like a self-made man. Mm-hmm. He seems openly antagonistic to Rushmore and like the concept of Rushmore and especially the people that go there. Yeah. Which is like evident in the first scene that we see him in where he is giving a speech to the, the entire school of Rushmore, basically telling the people that go there that don't come from good backgrounds to like take dead aim at the rich boys he says and like take them down yeah that's actually like a good summary of i think a lot of the themes here is that little speech because that's exactly what max is that's exactly max is a an up-and-coming self-made man that doesn't come from the the quote-unquote correct like money background as the rest of his students and Mm -hmm. so therefore he has to bridge that gap and actually like take the world for himself it's not just going to be given to him right and so it's this that this thing that like brings those two characters together max fisher and bill murray Mm -hmm. they kind of recognize themselves as sort of coming from the same place Mm -hmm. although actually nobody really knew that max came from like a lower class background until the very end of the movie interestingly yeah because he like lies about his father's (laughs) profession says that he's a neurosurgeon i like the whole my uh, father may only be a neurosurgeon, but we get by. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? I really like the, um, the I don't really know what you would call it, kind of the visual or maybe, like, professional duality of, like, a barber and a neurosurgeon. Like, both people who deal with, like, the human skull ah. in, in some sort of way. But, like, one is cutting hair and one is cutting it open. Because there's a line somewhere early in the movie where, like, he says something like cut like cutting into someone's like head is like something that I could never imagine. But my dad like is, is good at it or something, you know? Oh, wow. That's a That's a great little uh, tidbit. I never picked up on that. Yeah, definitely some sort of like, I don't know, meta- metaphorical or visual or professional just dualism with a neurosurgeon and a barber. I don't really know yeah. what to make of it beyond that. No, that's great. I, I thought he was just picking a high class sounding job. Mm hmm. And then at the end, the the father, when Luke Wilson's character approaches Max's father, and he's like, um, "Hey, I heard you're a neurosurgeon." Yeah, he 
he's like no i'm a barber yeah because luke himself was a nurse so he was just trying to like make conversation uh-huh with somebody else in the field and he's right. like uh, no i'm a barber but people Common often mistake. make that mistake yeah <laughs> yeah which is just a joke yeah love that the, the joke is exactly what you said is that they're both professions that deal with the head uh-huh and so now that line makes more sense not only head but the like the head and like blades and blades and cutting things like in the head on the head I got a great like scene in my head. Like imagine a brain surgeon doing brain surgery in a barber's chair in a barber shop with like hair on the ground. Oh my god. And it's god. like it's low lighting, like there's blood it's on horrifying. the Horrifying. What are you Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. This is my new horror film. <laughs> Barbershop surgeon. Oh Jesus. Awful. Just awful. S- Simply awful. So yeah, those are those are my two favorite scenes, basically the the beginning and the end. I really we talked about this a second ago. I really like the whole baseball construction thing that he does somewhere like in the middle of the movie. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't really like. This is my first time seeing this movie, so it was a little tough to follow some of those plot points. But like, it seemed like him doing that whole. He basically is like erecting some sort of like memorial or something he's like breaking ground on some sort of like construction project and he seems to have like organized a bunch of people like a bunch of officials and a band to like come to the baseball stadium as he like breaks ground on something and like there's a photographer there it's just like what you imagine like a regular groundbreaking ceremony to be like but he seems to have done it under completely like false pretenses as like as a stunt to like impress somebody or like maybe he's just acting out like which which of it is those is he like acting out or is he like using it to impress the girl i i can't remember because does it end up getting made or not Cause no like, I'm... well i don't i didn't think so i thought they like shut it down because there's definitely the scene that you're talking about like the director or the the principal guy comes up and like shuts the whole thing down uh-huh and like yells at him for obviously not having permission to do any of this but then I thought there was also a scene at the end that like showed that it eventually ended up coming together. Oh, okay. Well, I missed that. But anyways, I just love, 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 love the concept of him being kind of this like false, confident, like adult high school character that we've talked about at length now uh-huh. to where like his version of like acting out is creating this like false groundbreaking ceremony. That's right. so funny to me. Whereas like his version of like vandalism is like creating like a fake memorial with like all the trappings of like normal (laughs) like normal ceremonies like that yeah i mean just the idea that he thought that he could make this happen well he did that's what's so cool and i think that that's not i mean it's obviously like wes anderson and it's like all weird but i mean like if you did if you did it right you could do you could do something like that i think he was actually trying to get the aquarium made like that's right or or do you think that he was actually just now, this is something I'm a little confused by, actually. What motivated the building of the aquarium? It was his, it was the girlfriend. The teacher? The teacher, yeah. But yeah, it was, there was like a rumor that like she wished that someone would build her an aquarium or something. Because remember, they have that conversation where she was like, I never really wanted anyone to build me an aquarium. I don't know how that rumor got started. Uh-huh. And there, there's something about aquariums with her in the classroom. I would need to watch it again to like pick up on on all that stuff. I can't remember the timeline because I almost thought that like this was just something he was cooking up unrelated to her. Like it was just one of his many super ambitious projects that he kind of had on the docket. Mm-hmm. 
and this is a kid that like i've seen this type before super ambitious kid who just is full of ideas but doesn't have like the resources or the know-how or the wherewithal to actually carry stuff through Mm -hmm. but it's just somebody that loves starting projects yeah what other scenes do you like it's basically where the scene gets really serious about like the dynamic between him and the elementary school teacher yeah this is where reality kind of like dropped yeah which i think is something that you don't see that much in other Wes Anderson movies, at least mm-hmm. not to this degree. Like, this feels like a real, like, switch is flipped into, like, s- very dramatic, like, s- ser- serious, like, gravitas in a scene. Yeah, no, I, I totally am vibing with what you're saying. Like, this scene, probably more than any other, doesn't feel Wes Anderson at all. Yeah. And, and he's no stranger to, like, weird sexual relationships or dynamics. Like, Remember that the the Royal Tenenbaums has a whole thing about the adopted sister and brother, right? That love each other, right? right? I mean, so so that's pretty like taboo sexual stuff there. Uh huh. But that never felt as serious as this one. No, I mean it's it it, it feels like much more traditional dramatic movie making here, where and and I actually think it works in a really cool way because com- someone who has seen like more of like. Wes Anderson's later movies and being like well acquainted with the Wes Anderson not serious style in dealing with a lot of this stuff and then seeing this like it felt like a real departure from like what I'm used to seeing with him and I'm like ooh, this is interesting where it's like Wes Anderson's being serious all of a sudden Uh uh-huh and it to describe the scene a little bit it's like even the camera angle sort of change where Max and the teacher ultimately have this like falling out where she's basically telling him to stop pursuing her and she's like kind of questioning him in a way to to shock him into leaving her alone is how i read it well because remember at at this point max had just gotten her fired oh okay so she had like a real reason to be very she was like packing up her stuff in that scene oh okay yeah so that's why she was like really came out forcefully uh, arguably like well not arguably obviously very inappropriate way to talk about to a, a young person yeah using kind of sexual language with him and, and she's like what do you think's gonna happen between us huh like do you think we're gonna have sex how would you describe it to people uh-huh. and it all seems in an effort to like really like affect him uh in a serious way to get him to leave her alone because she oh yeah she was going for the death punch because he's made her life so much more difficult at this point and i think that he, even the camera angle changes and along with that the whole tone of like the movie changes during the scene where it's handheld camera shots and it's sort of more traditional angles and she's sort of walking him down into a corner and really getting in his face and both characters are very serious does not have that very cutesy Wes Anderson thing going on and I, I, I just found that that was a really interesting switch like the movie like after that happens really just kind of flips back to Wes Anderson mode yeah, but being someone who's seen Wes Anderson before and totally understanding the formula, as difficult as it is to describe, <laughs> that felt like an extremely different thing than what I was expecting out of this whole movie. And then, and then it does switch right back. And in fact, this is not the last time that Jason Schwartzman tries to court or go after the teacher character. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, he tries again later on. Is are you talking about the bicycle scene? Yeah, the bicycle scene. Which is a great, like, contrast to this scene because the sexual tension is, like, turned way up in that scene. 
compared to this uh-huh. one. But like is in it's still being presented in like Wes Anderson mode, so it doesn't feel like as serious or as inappropriate as this scene does. Well, yeah, definitely, and it's also a very funny scene, which right. this scene is not. No, so it's a completely different. Yeah, there's a flip coin of that, which is like you know, it's, I think it says something about like the visual style or maybe just tonal style of Wes Anderson because he's able to take what I would say is a less serious moment and present it in a much more serious way than a more serious moment later on in the movie. Can we just talk about that scene? The bicycle scene? Yeah. Okay. So funny. Did we talk about this last night, about how like he obviously took the bicycle? Yeah, it was something that, that you said you didn't pick up on the first time, but I did the first time, ah. so there you go. It, so earlier in the movie, Bill Murray ran over Max Fisher's bike, yeah. This is during a montage where they were like fighting each other. Yeah, they didn't like um, each other. So he just took that exact bike, parked it outside the Fisher's, the, the teacher's door mm-hmm. or a window house. Planted um, it there. Planted there under a spotlight. I, I think the spotlight is a very just like Wes Anderson thing. And real quick on that, we were talking about like plays and how like his his style mirrors plays. I think that... In the context of the movie, that that is supposed to be like a street light, but yeah. it's very obviously like a spotlight. It is a light used for like theater purposes. In the context of the real world, like that's what the light they use to shoot that scene is. But it it's supposed to look like a street light. So just like quick note on the whole Wes Anderson theatrical style, like like street lights are spotlights in his world. I didn't catch on to that, but it was, like, a very strong, very, like, laser-focused light mm-hmm. for a street light. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he pa- he plants the bike there. Yeah, meticulously in the spotlight, which is, like, funny. That's, like, how you would, um, what, what's it called when you set up a, a set? Set up a set? Set dressing? Set dressing, set, set up. Yeah, set dressing. Scene design? Art design? Whatever. I mean, it Anyways. all works. Yeah. But that's like how you would do it, right? Uh-huh. You would like very meticulously place this bike under the light. But mm-hmm. in Max's world, he's like saying that he got hit by the car. The bike landed dead center under the light mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah. It's just like, it's all too like fantastical to believe. Right. Which is like the Wes Anderson style. Right. But then see, he puts a little bit of like fake blood on his head, walks up to her window and like knocks on it. Mm-hmm. Which, what a ridiculous thing to do. Like... <laughs> Why would you go straight for the bedroom window? It's on the second floor. He, like he, he had a ladder. He, he has the ladder for some reason, climbs up to the second floor and knocks on her window. How did he explain the ladder? I don't think he did. How did he know which room was hers? I'm going back to check, and he definitely has like a like an industrial like ladder that you your dad would have in his garage. <laughs> yeah, he does. Like the story is just falling apart as it's being told. And, and so all of this is just in an attempt to get into her bedroom to try to, you know, continue to sexually harass her. Mm-hmm. And then they ex- they exchange some, like, nice, thoughtful conversation. We learn a little bit more about her dead husband. Um, he comes out about how his mom has died. Uh-huh. Doesn't really go anywhere. Culminates in her finding the fake blood and telling him to go out. And he's just like, oh, I'll just take the window. <laughs> I'll just go. I'll just go out the window again. Yeah. My favorite line from that whole scene is when they're discussing bill murray's character who at this point has been like an on again off again sexual competitor of max fisher or max fisher asks the teachers like why aren't you with 
Boomer's character. That's what he said. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, she was like, uh, well, one, he's married. Two, he hates himself. And three, he's got some other shit going on. Like, didn't he hit your bike? Didn't he, like, bang up your bike or something? <laughs> and then very quickly realizes, because that is the bike that he used to stage the crash. He's like, yeah. yes, my previous bicycle. <laughs> I love how he's still trying to, like, sell the lie even at that point. Right. He's like, I got to keep the con going. Right. He's, yes, my previous bicycle. Because at that point he realizes, like, okay, now I'm asking her to believe that I've had, like, two bike-related accidents in, like, the last two weeks. What I didn't quite understand is, like, right after they showed the the bike getting beat up by Bill Murray, that his, like, he's, like, in the next scene, like, riding a different bike. And I don't know where that bike came from. Oh, yeah. I don't know who, am I supposed to know whose bike that is or why? He just has a bike? Yeah. (laughs) Why is he riding a bike now? I don't know. It's like we're going to show the scene of Bill Murray like smashing up this kid's bike, but the next scene is like him riding a different bike. <laughs> we haven't talked enough about his character. Bill Murray. He's so outlandish. Not unlike other Bill Murray roles. No, not at all. Do you remember that one scene where him and Max are riding down an elevator and like Bill Murray is like really disheveled, has two cigarettes in his mouth? Yeah. <laughs> and he ha- and he's like drinking a beer uh-huh there's this one shot like where there's so much going on in the environment that i feel like i missed this the first time i watched the movie in the elevator oh he's pouring like a shot of some liquor i'm assuming like a small yeah. bottle of liquor into a beer can in his <laughs> in his coat pocket in his coat pocket yeah. that's so hilarious and he has like two cigarettes or just one at this point Uh uh-huh and he's like putting all of his garbage into the little cart yeah it's like a maid cart or something yeah and he just looks like trash it's a extremely like cartoony like way of showing someone like spiraling yeah like he has (laughs) pouring like a kind of alcohol a different kind of alcohol into a beer can in his coat two cigarettes placing stuff all over the the elevator but like not at all a way that like a a real person who's spiraling would act no but like somehow still communicating this is another one of the things he does like he really uh-huh. likes meticulous like the characters are always doing something like so meticulous with their hands or like clothing yeah a lot of details or kind of like um you remember that that sketch ryan gosling's acting range yeah you remember that i do and he's like yeah. you always got to be doing something with your hands and he's like putting yeah. a pen in and out of his pocket <laughs> That's such a funny one. But Wes Anderson does a lot of stuff like that with his characters, and that scene's just a great example of that. What does his uh, company do? I love his company. It just looks like what I think of when I think of American industry. Yeah. Like the kind of places that have unions, (laughs) labor unions. You know what I'm saying? Uh But I don't know. I mean, it looks like they're smelting things in the background. Yeah. Very, like, industrial looking sort of factory maybe uh-huh he has an office that is like within the factory on the the factory floor i believe yeah i think that's an interesting i don't know vi- visual choice where uh, you know oftentimes when we think of like ceos or like extremely successful business people we think of them in like these pristine offices like in skyscrapers but this is a very specific type of successful businessman yeah which is someone who like kind of worked his way up through a, a working class industry uh-huh. and now he his office is actually still in that factory 
amongst like all of the the very yeah like labor intensive work that's still going on. He's not in a skyscraper with like a boardroom and all that. Yeah, I like I like where your mind is going here. Mm-hmm. It, it contrasts so much with Rushmore, which is all that we had been inundated with visually since the start of the movie. This like very mm-hmm. academic, very prestigious and elitist institution. And then, like, his factory, by comparison, seems like, you know, working class. It's like the working class is, like, successful class. Yeah. You know? Very distinct from Rushmore. So, like, it made sense, like, why earlier he was so critical of Rushmore as being, like, pretty elitist. And then the way that he works actually, like, seems, like, not elitist. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm looking at his desk right now. He has a lamp that the base is just a cube of concrete. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like, uh-huh. It is just a cube of concrete. Like that tells me all I need to know about this character. Mhm. Steel Harry. Yeah, it's like um you said early, like going through the motions earlier when referring to like Max's character and that f- that kind of seems to be on brand with that idea as well. Where it's like someone who is amongst the factory still is like very successful obviously and has like risen to the top of his industry but like is still not amongst that elitist class that it makes up what is Rushmore uh-huh and so like he's sort of going through the motions of being like a millionaire or a billionaire right yeah 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 like the you can tell the only reason he's involved with Rushmore at all is because of his kids right uh-huh because they go there but his kids are like fucking awful yeah like this man does does not love his children (laughs) at all because how bad they are Uh uh-huh he's like the only reason he has to be involved with this like elitist academic world is because he has to send his children there because he's a millionaire and that's the best school in the area and that's the best chances like making sure your kid succeeds later in life kind of through those old school professional circles Mm-hmm. But you can tell that he just like doesn't like that aspect of his life. He doesn't want to do it, but he's just kind of obligated to. Mm-hmm. He's a really interesting character. We don't really know that much about him. No, he's going through a divorce at some point during the movie. Do we yeah. see his wife at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we do. We see her at, like the pool party because she's party. having an affair. At least that's implied. Right. That like his wife is having an affair, and that's the reason he's sort of acting out sexually, or mm-hmm. one of the reasons. But I, I really like the other little tidbit that we learn about him uh, when he's talking to Max. And it was just like a throwaway line. Max says, um, oh, I heard you were in Vietnam. He was like, yep. Were you were you in the shit? Yeah, yeah I was in the shit. Yeah, I was in the shit. <laughs> like that, I think about that line a lot because it just like tells me so much. Immediately after he says that, I'm just like teleport myself back to like the 60s when this character was like a young man, like fighting for his life. And then, like, 30 years later, he's a millionaire. He has the worst kids. His uh-huh. life and his life is just completely different than what it was uh-huh. when he was in his 20s. Mm-hmm. That's how good that character is. And I just, like, I think about his life. Do you think that, like, because of that, the whole Vietnam play at the end is some sort of, like, honorary nod to yeah. him? He was crying during that scene. At the yeah, end. he was crying during that scene. So that makes sense. And I feel like, let me maybe put it this way. Maybe this is way off base. You can correct me. But maybe the play itself, you know, you see little snippets of it. We don't see the whole play. We see like these little, it's kind of like montage highlight reel of the play. And 
Max Fisher is the title character. He's like a Vietnam War hero in it. And it has some sort of like heroic ending, like badass ending with sunglasses and shit. Sunglasses. But it, it seems like he it maybe sees Bill Murray's character as a role model passively or like up and down throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And like finally decides to embrace it as a role model. Like when he writes that character where he's like, this is like the ultimate version of this guy that I ah. think I'm portraying him in this play. I like what you did there. You, you think there's water to that? I think so. I, I can say that I definitely like never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Like I just thought he was doing like another like big time Hollywood genre movie action. Yeah. Because like earlier he did like that gangster movie. Uh-huh. And so like gangster movie, war movies, th- these all seem like the kind of genres that seem popular at the time. Yeah. And I mean, we, we were talking earlier about how like Max Fisher is basically like a pipsqueak and except when it comes to his place, like that's the one thing that everybody agrees on that he does well and he can express himself accurately through. And so the ultimate like honor that someone could uh, have via Max Fisher is to have like a play written about them because that's his his best medium yeah and so that's the only character that is affiliated with vietnam in any way yeah and so it it seems seems to stand to reason that he would be a role model and like that's the reason the play was written i have another line in support of that okay remember the scottish character guy yeah the bully when when at the end he was like um i have a role for you in my play and he was like oh i've always wanted to be in one of y'all stupid plies i can do it (laughs) i great accent i've always wanted to be in one of your stupid plays i i don't know give me something more scott like uh stereotypically scottish to pronounce fesh like what's, fish what's that but you just replace the i fucking, with an e fucking hi mate fucking hi no we can i always my go-to is highlander or not highlander that has scottish people in it too but um braveheart they can take our land, but they can never take our freedom <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough accent it is like one of the hardest ones i think what's that really famous movie uh, about the scots that like did a lot of drugs uh train spotting train spotting they're scots right i don't i don't know if they're scottish in that movie but like you you said that it it clicked somehow (laughs) the big thing is like that the you you have to have subtitles on for that movie oh okay you can't do it you can't do it without subtitles it's like an extremely like slang heavy version of scottish maybe yeah or english but you were talking about the the scottish character has like a a role like he's like got a role for you so that scene so the scottish person admits that like he holds jason schwartzman movies in such high regard that they're like an actually a cool thing plays he plays. Holds plays in high regard uh yes yeah sorry which confirms that not only is he like good at making plays, but like people actually think he's cool for making them. Mm-hmm. Like it could also be that he's good at making plays, but everybody thinks he's nerdy or something, or okay. that he's like a theater geek or something. Mm-hmm. But that shows that actually his peers also think that what he does is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And then Max told him that I know that you wanted to be in my plays, which tells me that he knows that people like his plays and hold them in high esteem. And there's something mm-hmm. that's cool. So Max knows that if he like puts you in a play, he's, he's very deliberate about that. So it would make sense to me that he would make the play an homage to Bill Murray's character and that he knew mm-hmm. he was doing it and he was deliberate about it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we're on to something there. Tweet us your thoughts at, at @filmholepod. Why was the play written at the end? No one has ever tweeted at us. What's up with that? What's up, guys? I mean, I'm pouring my heart out here. Yeah. Come on, all you tweeters. I'm going to have to get a second mortgage if I don't get any more of those tweets. So, Can we do one of those like clickbaity? Like, how many retweets can we get on this like photo of Raul si- signing like the paperwork for a new mortgage? <laughs> one like equals one respect. Or, or what are those things? It's like, if I get 1,000 likes, I will remortgage my house. <laughs> so what's the deal with uh, Wes Anderson's like pop culture appeal, and why do we hate him for it? Uh, I hate him because I love him so much. Yeah. You're too easy to love, and I'm going to direct this <laughs> directly to Wes Anderson. Uh-huh. I know you're listening. <laughs> but he is just like the most uncontroversially good easy to love easy to watch director that i can think of off the top of my head yeah his films are like candy yeah everybody loves candy that's a good way of putting it yeah i think that like what we said earlier about him having kind of like a childlike perspective of the world is maybe a good reason for that like his movies tonally feel incredibly innocent Uh uh-huh like it seems like if you wanted to critique them that you would be like I don't, like critiquing like a child or something like you shouldn't do it you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it's like this movie is like too cute and innocent for you to like make any like bad bones about it yeah and which which is all to say that we think he because he's so like well regarded um and universally acclaimed i i don't find very many wes anderson detractors out there no oh. and i'm sure they're out there and i'm starting the club right now you know, right? You can't you can't fly this high for so long without getting you know, <laughs> getting my scope on you. Yeah. So, what would you uh, rate this movie? I would um seven point five uh, red um berets. <laughs> Is that what they're called? Yeah, beret. I was wondering what that hat was like Russian. Uh, yeah, it's a beret. I think it's that French. Was ridiculous. Um. So that's my score. I got it. I'll I'll give this movie a numerical score of 9.7. I'm going to start getting really specific with my scores. Okay. Boxes of dynamite out of 10. That's a good one. Exquisitely boxed. Crated box of dynamite. Crated dynamite. 7.5 berets out of 10. All right, let's uh talk about what movie we want to watch next week. Okay. So we've got some uh, listener feedback. We had kind of discussed what this would look like pretty early on. We kind of got on this train of like, ooh, that's a good movie. That's a good movie. And like we're basically kind of lined up our watching schedule for the next like two weeks or so. And we think we want to dip our toes into maybe some early 2000s animated movies. Classic childhood stuff. Specifically our childhood, I think. We are considering doing a double feature next week of the Lost City of Atlantis and the Road to El Dorado. Uh-huh. Thanks for listening this week. Our music is by W. Look him up at underscore W on Instagram. That's underscore the word double and two letter U's. The editing this week, like all previous weeks, was done by Grace Fawcett. 
who is amazing. Wherever you're listening, give us a good rating. Connect with us at, at @filmholepod on Twitter and Instagram. Special thanks to Brady Goodman for hosting our podcast. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Brady. Uh, also, special thanks to Grace Fawcett for editing again this week. Anyone else? And special thanks to Chris Maddy. Like, You're I better than know. me, Grace. And special thanks to Savannah Smith. I I can't I can't hold my own with them. Thanks again. See, See you next, next week. week.